Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like airports, and I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. And I'm recording at the Sheraton across the street from Cleveland Hopkins International. The reason I'm recording at the Sheraton across the street from Cleveland Hopkins International is because I'm home from my grandfather's funeral. Uh, his funeral is tomorrow, and I found out last Sunday. My mom texted me that evening, and she told me that we lost daddy. And I've already lost some key figures in my life, my grandmother, his, his ex-wife, uh, and my great-grandparents. My mom's mom's mom, and my mom's mom's dad. Uh, all of these people, central figures, very influential in different ways in my life, my grandparents and my great-grandparents. Uh, with losing my grandfather, um, it doesn't hit as hard, uh, and that's not to disparage or undermine or the importance of losing my grandfather because I love him very much. I think for this one, I was bracing myself for the last five, six years. Uh, he had three stints into his heart back in 2013. And he had, yeah, he had bypass surgery and he didn't let his foot off the gas. Even after that, he was still smoking his cigarettes, still smoking weed, still drinking. And my grandfather's one of those people where you can't tell him what to do. The boss tells him something, he's got to do at the job, fuck this job, I'll quit it. Doctor's telling him, oh, you can't eat this or that. No, I'm going to get me a sirloin. Fuck you talking about. And even, I was told, even at his deathbed, there were empty Heineken bottles. That gives me a little bit of resolve. Doesn't make it any better that, you know, I doesn't take away the fact that I lost my grandpa. But I like the fact that my grandpa did things his way from beginning to end. And like I said, I was bracing myself for it because my grandpa was not just cheating death. He was toying with it, playing with it, playing with death like a slinky. And at the same time, he was battling dementia. It runs on that side of the family. Uh, my great grandmother, his mother, she had it really bad. And uh, I'm concerned. I, I like to think that I'm sharp as a tack most of the time, not all the time. But our time is going to come, each and every one of us. It's a sad truth. And I I'm just going to miss him. Uh, he is another reason why I got into wrestling. My great-grandmother would get the pay-per-view for me. And my grandfather would come by. He would be one of the people that come by and watch it with me. Along with my cousin, some of my great aunts, great uncles. It would be a family deal. Family gathering of sorts. And another cool thing about having my grandpa as my grandpa. 
growing up in the 80s, my grandfather ran a candy store. So I would get free gummy worms, Sour Patch Kids, uh, potato chips, sodas, you name it. I'm in Ohio now, so I can say pop. I would get pop. And whenever he'd come through for the pay-per-views, he'd have baggies of Sour Patch Kids, all of that. The Boston Baked Beans, the goods. Grandpa knew what I liked. And he was one of the coolest people. One of the coolest, snazziest dressers I'll ever know. He always had silky hair. And people thought that my grandfather permed it. But he was born that way. He was born with straight hair. And a lot of people said he started, he was looking like Barry White. The older he got, he was starting to look like Barry White. They had the same hair, uh, the same facial structure. And he had a gravelly voice. Just a smooth cat. One of the smoothest. And he will be missed. And uh, I got here in Cleveland around 10 o'clock last night, 10 o'clock Saturday. And I just assumed that I would be able to get a ride. Like my family in Sandusky, no one was available. They were either working out of town at the time, couldn't do it. And uh, I, I reached out to some of my friends here in Cleveland. Same deal. Out of town. I'm at work. Got kids. We're all of the above. And it's a, another reminder as to why I had to get the fuck out of Ohio. I love you, Ohio, but damn. Some of these same people that weren't available to pick me up from the airport are the same people asking me, Steve, when are you coming back home to Ohio? And I feel like telling them to suck my dick, but I'd lose friends that way. And I have tact, believe it or not, but it's frustrating because they don't put themselves in my shoes. Hey man, when you coming down? Dude, you do realize that when I do come down, you give me nothing to do. Oh my God, dude, I cannot wait to get back home to Ohio so I can stare at the walls, watch the grass grow, watch the paint dry, and wait for you to get off work. That's gonna be fun. I can't wait for you to get off work, buddy, so you can partake in these festivities. Oh, and then my favorite, Guess how many crickets are chirping? Ooh, I think that's a praying mantis I hear. But I love you, Ohio. And I, I've been here at the Sheraton just about all day. I spent the night in the airport and in the morning in the AM, you know, it was starting to get crowded. And I got a podcast to run every Sunday. And I, I needed to find privacy. So I, I walked across the street to the Sheraton and I tried to find some peace. As soon as I get in the lobby, there's pop music playing, there's elevator music all over the place. No quiet. So I find this desolate pool room that's not being used because of COVID. It looks like it hasn't been used before COVID. It's like, okay, this is safe. I don't see any people. Soon as I push record, People coming in and out of their rooms, walking back and forth from the pool room to the lobby, from their room through the pool room to the lobby. And I just said, fuck. I was about to throw this phone against the wall. It's like, nah, Steve, just get in the lobby, take a power nap. 
set your mind right. Take a power nap. So I took a power nap and I said, let's do this again. So here I am doing this episode live, well, not live, but from the Sheraton across the street from Cleveland Hopkins International. And soon enough, my cousin is going to come through and pick me up. My cousin drove from Detroit. She had a, an event in Detroit. And I mean, as of now, she's the only one available. So my cousin, Ebony, you're the real MVP. Coming all the way from Detroit. She had to drop some stuff off in Sandusky. And she's coming all the way over to the east side. Going an hour east to pick me up in Cleveland. To go back to Sandusky. So here I am awaiting. And I'm here till Wednesday. So I'm going to try to make the most of it. The, the remaining time I do have to cherish my time with my family. Because I don't see them as much. Uh, they could always visit me though. But I digress. Now over the week I was able to see the Suicide Squad on HBO Max. And man. I would say this is probably just as good even better than most Marvel movies. I would put this against most Marvel movies. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, it's to me, now this is just my opinion, it's the best superhero movie since The Avengers. It's just my opinion. What do I know? Just a nigga with a podcast. But everybody came through. I like John Cena. And you know how I am about Cena's. You can't see him. Uh, he came through. Idris Elba's character came through. Uh, and I wasn't familiar with these characters because I don't read comic books like that. But they had like this shark guy, this like shark man dude. And I was told by my, my buddy Matt that the shark, the voice of the shark guy was played by Sylvester Stallone. Um, and he kind of had that little... So it makes sense. They have this rat lady. She pulls out this light and all these uh, rats just come out the woodwork and just nibble her 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 op. But overall, I thought it was a great movie. It blows that Justice League bullshit out of the water. That Zack Miller, I, I wish I could get that fourth of a day, that fifth of a day back. Because I will never watch that bullshit again. How dare you make a four and a half hour movie? And it wasn't that great. Don't argue with me, argue with yourself. So I'm a little raspy. I don't know if you could tell, but uh, this is a tired Steve uh, hungry Steve uh, and stank I admit it I stank right now ball stank, breath stank damn, I hate to even look in the mirror right now I'm sure I look like a rat's nest in human form but Suicide Squad check that out John Cena's John Cena's Oh, yeah, and then Pete Davidson's in it. Yeah. But also, Nas's King's Disease 2 came out on Friday. And it's another classic. It's another classic. Is it an Illmatic? No. Is it an Untitled? No. Not even it was written. People are prisoners of the moment. As soon as a, a legendary artist puts something out, oh, man, it's the greatest. He hasn't done this in a long time. It's a good album. It's a good album. It's better than okay. 
but King's Disease 2 is 15 songs, 51 minutes, 32 seconds. With features from Eminem, A Boogie with the Hoodie, YG, Lauren Hill, yeah, that Lauren Hill, the real Lauren Hill, Charlie Wilson, uh, Bixed. Uh, my favorites are the ones with uh, A Boogie with a Hoodie and YG. It's called YKTV. Uh, I like the one with Eminem. It's called EPMD2. And Eminem's doing his typical wordplay flipping and all of that. 40 side. Actually, the fir- I would say the first half of this album I added to my playlist. Well, uh, Once it got to the Lauryn Hill, and it's not a bad one, but it, it's not playlist worthy. Not for me. And then the Charlie Wilson, it's that uh, obligatory, uh, I gotta have an R&B singer uh, singing my hook track. It's a must for all hip-hop albums. Uh, You gotta make something for the ladies. But overall, it's a great album. Uh, King's Disease 2, check it out. Now, Los Angeles added to their arsenal. We already know the Brody, Bron, and Brow situation is in play. And over the week, they just added Carmelo. Bronze longtime Brody and people are already making the jokes oh the Los Angeles Lakers more like the Los Angeles Expendables <laughs> you going to get Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson too <laughs> yeah we'll see next summer motherfuckers God willing God willing if everyone's healthy mellow three shots to the dome don't underestimate him and yeah, we know Clay with the K. Yeah, we know he's back, but I don't give a fuck. But all things August 8th in 1986, She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's debut film premiered in theaters. On that same day in 90, 1986, the Transformers, the movie premiered. In 1992, during the Guns N' Roses Metallica Stadium Tour, Metallica frontman James Hetfield is burned by a pyrotechnic blast during a concert at Montreal's Olympic Stadium, and forcing the group to cancel the second hour of the show. The co-headliners, Guns N' Roses, they take the stage but walk off early with Axl Rose complaining of throat problems. The abbreviated show caused angry fans to riot in the streets of Montreal, and the tour resumed on August 25th of that year, but with the guitar technician replacing Hetfield on guitar for the remainder of the tour. In 1995, Eon Flux premiered on MTV. On that same day, Gangster's Paradise, the single released by Coolio, uh, would eventually win Billboard Song of the Year. And man, that song was inescapable. Inescapable the summer of 95. In 2005, Weeds premieres on Showtime. In 2006, actor Sylvester Stallone and former heavyweight boxing contender Chuck Webner settle a lawsuit out of court for an undisclosed sum. Webner claims he was the inspiration for the Rocky movies. And on that same day, Rick Ross releases Port of Miami. And what a banger it was. Boss! In 2011, Jay-Z and Kanye West release Watch the Throne. And that is a classic. Uh, I mean, come on, Jay. Come on, Yay. Y'all got to get back together. Hug it out. Uh, make a sequel. The world needs it. In 2014, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles premiered in theaters. And a lot of people shit on it because it doesn't compare to the original with Corey Feldman. And Ernie Reyes. It's all CGI, but I actually liked it. Believe it or not. 
In 2017, the Walt Disney Company announces plans to create its own streaming service, canceling ties with Netflix. And before you know it, Walt Disney is going to own every fucking thing, including the draws you're wearing. But more importantly, I'm going to be talking about the greatest sports team ever assembled, the Dream Team. On this day, August 8, 1992, the greatest team ever assembled won the gold medal for U.S. of A. U.S. of a A? Yeah. Beating Croatia. And you can take any team, any dynasty, uh, the Dallas Cowboy teams of the 90s, the San Francisco 49ers of the 80s, the Yankees teams of any of those eras. This dream team could beat anybody. The dream team could beat the fucking X-Men. The dream team could beat the Monstars. Hell, they don't even play hockey, but I'm sure they could beat the Detroit Red Wings because they were that fucking awesome. They were like the Beatles hopping off of the fucking tour bus. The Beatles hopping off the plane in the United States for the first time. I'm going to be talking about that. I love Watch the Throne. I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. All of that shit. But it's not as important. It's not as relevant. It doesn't have a higher ranking than the Dream Team. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, David Robinson, Karl Malone. (sighs) This is the best. And all of these guys were either at their peak or around their peak. Clyde Drexler. So yeah... 1992 on August 8th, the Dream Team won the gold medal, and I'm going to be talking about them later. Today in sports history, in 1976, the Chicago White Sox suit up in shorts. In 1983, the first Athletics World Championships are held. Carl Lewis wins the gold in the 100 meter. In 1984, Carl Lewis wins the third gold medal of the Los Angeles Olympics, joining Kirk Baptiste and Thomas Jefferson in an American sweep of the 200 meter. In 1985, baseball's new agreement permits two new National League teams in 1993, which would eventually become Colorado Rockies and the Florida Marlins. In 1990, Carlton Fisk ties Johnny Bench, hitting 327 home runs as a catcher. And on that same day, Pete Rose begins his five-month prison term at Marion Federal Prison Camp. In 1992, the original U.S. Dream Team wins the basketball gold at the Barcelona Olympics, 117-85 to over Croatia. In 1997, Mariners' Randy Johnson strikes out 19 Chicago White Sox. In 2004, John Elway is inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In 2008, the Summer Olympic Games open in Beijing, China. And that was my half-fast sports report. Coming up, I'm going to be talking about the greatest team ever assembled in sports history. The Dream Team of 92. We'll be black after these messages. In 
In today's birthdays for August 8th, turning 25 today is American basketball player Asia Wilson, or is it Aja? Turning 33 today is Italian basketball player Danilo Gallinari. Happy 40th birthday to American actress Megan Good. Yeah. Also turning 40 today is Swiss tennis player Roger Federer. Turning 42 today is American basketball player Richard Lewis. Happy 43rd birthday to American actress and singer Countess Vaughn. Turning 48 today is American singer from the band Creed Scott Stapp. Happy 49th birthday to American musician Lupus Thunder from the Bloodhound Gang. Yummy down on this. Happy 58th birthday to American director John Turtletop. Turning 59 today is actress Susie Pei from the movie Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, she was born in Toledo, Ohio. Go Ohio. Both turning 60 years old today are rock guitars from the band U2, The Edge, and NFL Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews. Turning 68 today is American actor and director Donnie Most. Happy 69th birthday to radio and TV personality Robin Quivers. American fashion designer Dapper Dan turns 77 today. And happy 84th birthday to American actor Dustin Hoffman. Sometimes I lose my mind. 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 Sometim
In the earth, in the verse, then disperse it to the streets Been a merchant burning beats, sweets Blowing out my teeth, verbiage urging you to reach Run away from the verbose, pleasant voice But of course leads you further up the coast And around again, and it feels like the future's here before So I skip to my loop, having visions of support A chrome that foundation ever since I've been annoying Got no choice, reaching for the very treasure in my voice Pipe down, pipeline, downtown, it's dirty Sightline, riding for a fleet, heaven sent 30 deep Even if it's unsafe, it's suitable, it's therapy Married to the money, need a chariot to carry me I said I need a chariot to carry me Further than time traveling, Twitter trending charity Twitter trending charity, the cherubs out on television Drop bombs, it's rhymes straight out of Lake Garrelly Death, death, sound, leave you blind It happens all the time Sometimes I lose my mind 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 It's like a make it death, death, sound, leave you blind It happens all the time Sometimes I lose my mind And a special mention to those no longer with us. This past Wednesday, we lost American professional wrestler Bobby Eaton. Born Robert Lee Eaton on August 14, 1958 in Huntsville, Alabama, he was most famous for his work in tag teams, especially as one half of the Midnight Express. Under the management of Jim Cornette, he originally teamed with Dennis Condry and later on with Stan Lane. He also worked with a number of other tag team partners, including Arn Anderson, Coco Beware, Steve Kern, and Lord Steven Regal. Over the course of his career, which lasted from 1976 to 2015, Eden wrestled for extended periods of time for various wrestling promotions, Mid-America Wrestling, Continental Wrestling Association, Mid-South Wrestling, World Class Championship Wrestling, Jim Crockett Promotions, World Championship Wrestling, and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He also made brief guest appearances for Extreme Championship Wrestling, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, and a number of independent wrestling promotions over the years. He held a large number of championships, including NWA WCW World Tag Team Championship on three occasions. Eden was inducted into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame in 2009 and the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2019. In September 2006, it was reported that Eaton was hospitalized with suffering a heart attack. Eaton later released a statement saying that he did not have a heart attack but was instead diagnosed with high blood pressure with a hint of diabetes. After that, he suffered with several health issues, especially cardiac problems, which saw him hospitalized on several occasions. In June 2013, Eaton underwent successful surgery to have a pacemaker inserted. On August 4, 2021, just over a month after his wife's death, Eaton died in his sleep at age 62. He had been hospitalized in July after a fall. 
Just yesterday, we lost American comedian, actor, writer, director, producer, and musician Trevor Moore. Born Trevor Paul Moore on April 4, 1980 in Montclair, New Jersey, he was known as one of the founding members alongside Sam Brown and Zach Kreger of the New York City-based comedy troupe The Whitest Kids You Know, who had their own sketch comedy series on IFC, which ran for five seasons. Moore died after being involved in an accident in his yard on August 7, 2021. No details about the accident have been published. Moore was 41. Also yesterday, we lost American actress Marquis Post. Born Marjorie Armstrong Post on November 4, 1950 in Palo Alto, California, she's known for her roles as Bill Bondsman Terry Michaels in The Fall Guy on ABC from 1982 to 1985, and as public defender Christine Sullivan on the NBC sitcom Night Court from 1985 to 1992, and as Georgie Ann Lottie Hartman on the CBS sitcom Hearts of Fire from 1992 to 1995. Post was married first to Stephen Knox, whom she met at Lewis and Clark College. She later married actor and writer Michael A. Ross, with whom she had two daughters. Post died of cancer on August 7, 2021, at age 70. She had been diagnosed just under four years prior to her death. And just this morning, we lost American college football coach Bobby Bowden. Born Robert Kleckler Bowden on November 8, 1929, in Birmingham, Alabama, he coached the Florida State Seminoles of Florida State University from 1976 to 2009 and is considered one of the greatest college football coaches of all time for his accomplishments with the Seminoles. During his time at Florida State, Bowden led FSU to an Associated Press and Coaches Poll national title in 1993 and a BCS national championship in 1999, as well as 12 Atlantic Coast Conference championships once FSU joined the conference in 1991. Bowden Seminoles finished as an AP Top 5 team for 14 consecutive seasons, setting a record that doubled the closest program. However, the program weakened during the mid-2000s, and after a difficult 2009 season, Bowden was fired by President T.K. Weatherill just weeks after his 80th birthday. He made his final coaching appearance in the 2010 Gator Bowl game on January 1st, 2010, with a 33-21 victory over his former program, West Virginia. Bowden spent the last part of his career in a race with Joe Paterno to become the winningest NCAA Division I college football coach of all time. The coaches overtook each other throughout the 2000s, sitting just a game apart before the 2008 college football season. However, on March 6, 2009, an NCAA ruling required Florida State to vacate wins for any games in which an ineligible player participated, threatening to remove as many as 14 of Bowden's wins from the 2006 and 2007 seasons in relation to an academic scandal. Florida State appealed the ruling, but the NCAA upheld it on January 5, 2010. Upon final investigation by FSU, it was determined that Bowden was to vacate 12 wins, bringing his final career record to 377, 129, and 4, second to Paterno's final tally of 409 wins. Bowden was diagnosed with COVID-19 in October 2020. Bowden was diagnosed with a terminal medical condition in July 2021, reportedly pancreatic cancer. Bowden died roughly one month after announcing the diagnosis on August 8, 2021, age 91. Jerry Tarkanian was an American basketball coach. Born on August 8, 1930 in Euclid, Ohio. Ohio! 
He coached college basketball for 31 seasons, over five decades at three schools. He spent the majority of his career coaching with the UNLV running Rebels, leading them four times to the Final Four of the NCAA Men's Division I Basketball Tournament, winning the national championship in 1990. Tarkanian revolutionized the college game at UNLV, utilizing a pressing defense to fuel its fast-paced offense. Overall, he won over 700 games in his college coaching career, only twice failing to win 20 games, while never having a losing season. Tarkanian was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2013. Tarkanian studied at Pasadena City College and later Fresno State, earning a bachelor's degree while playing basketball. He was a head coach at the high school level before becoming a successful junior college coach at Riverside City College, winning three state championships, and returned to Pasadena City College and led them to a state championship. In 1968, he moved to a four-year college at Long Beach State College. Tarkanian established a successful program built on former junior college players who were typically considered second-rate by other four-year programs. He was also the rare coach who dared to start a predominantly black lineup. He compiled a 122-20 and 20 record over five years at Long Beach before moving to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or UNLV. He transformed the small program into a national powerhouse while granting his players the freedom to express themselves. Known for his colorful behavior and affectionately referred to as Tark the Shark, Tarkanian became a celebrity in Las Vegas. He left the running rebels for a brief stint coaching professionally with the San Antonio Spurs in the National Basketball Association before finishing his career at his alma mater, Fresno State. Throughout his career, he battled accusations of rules violations from the NCAA, with each of his three universities suffering penalties. Tarkanian responded by challenging the organization to also investigate larger and more powerful universities. The NCAA ordered UNLV to suspend him in 1977, but he sued the NCAA and continued coaching while the case was pending. The Supreme Court ruled against him in 1988, but he remained UNLV's coach after a settlement with the NCAA. Tarkanian sued them again in 1992, and the case was settled when he received $2.5 million in 1998. On February 11, 2015, Tarkanian died at the age of 84 at Valley Hospital Medical Center in Las Vegas, where he had been hospitalized days earlier after difficulty breathing. The city of Las Vegas that day lowered its flags at City Hall to half-staff in tribute to him. As a memorial tribute, the casinos along the Las Vegas Strip dimmed their lights for roughly three minutes in Tarkanian's honor on February 18th. Lord Alfred Hayes was an English professional wrestler, manager, and commentator. Born Alfred George James Hayes on August 8, 1928 in London, England, he's best known for his appearances in the United States with the World Wrestling Federation between 1982 and 1995, where he was known as Lord Alfred Hayes. Hayes was distinguished by his masterpiece theater diction and Oxford accent. Hayes retired from WWF in 1995 after enduring a series of pay cuts. McMahon and the rest of the office were reportedly very upset at the news as Hayes was someone that they didn't want to lose. Around this time, he was also involved in a serious car accident. As a result of the accident, he suffered gangrene and part of a leg had to be amputated. Hayes was a wheelchair user for the remainder of his life. He spent the last few years of his life in a retirement home, only venturing out of the home to make appearances at wrestling conventions sporadically. He later suffered a series of strokes and died on July 21, 2005 at his home in Texas. He was 76 years old.
Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1992, the U.S. men's basketball team, better known as the Dream Team, won the gold medal at the Olympics. The Dream Team was the first American Olympic team to feature active professional players from the NBA. The team has been described by journalists around the world as the greatest sports team ever assembled. At the 1992 Summer Olympics held in Barcelona, the team defeated its opponents by an average of 44 points en route to the gold medal against Croatia. The team was collectively inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame in 2009, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2010, and the FIBA Hall of Fame in 2017. The Naismith Hall calls the team the greatest collection of basketball talent on the planet. In addition to the team induction, 11 players and three coaches have been inducted individually into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. Prior to the 1992 Olympics, FIBA rules specifically prevented NBA players from participating in Olympic tournaments, and only amateurs were eligible for the U.S. Olympic teams, which were composed of collegiate and, at times, AAU players. Other countries used their best players from their domestic professional leagues. In the 1988 Summer Olympics, the Americans lost to the USSR and settled for bronze, their worst finish in the history of the tournament. In 1989, FIBA voted to change the rule and allow NBA players to participate. The vote was 56 to 13 in favor of the change. The Amateur Basketball Association of the United States of America voted against it due to colleges and high schools that make up most of the constituency opposing it. The Soviet proposal to limit the national teams to only two NBA players for the first few years was then unanimously rejected. USA Basketball asked the NBA to supply players for its 1992 roster. The league was initially unenthusiastic about the idea. In early 1991, Sports Illustrated labeled the forthcoming American roster as the Dream Team on the cover of its February 18th issue. The first 10 players for the team were selected on September 21, 1991. Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen of the Chicago Bulls, John Stockton and Karl Malone of the Utah Jazz, Magic Johnson of the Los Angeles Lakers, Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics, Patrick Ewing of the New York Knicks, Chris Mullen of the Golden State Warriors, David Robinson of the San Antonio Spurs, and Charles Barkley of the Philadelphia 76ers. On May 12, 1992, Clyde Drexler of the Portland Trailblazers was chosen over Isaiah Thomas of the Detroit Pistons for the final professional roster spot. As an acknowledgement to the previous amateur system, the U.S. Basketball Committee decided to include one collegiate player on the team. Christian Leitner of Duke University was added on May 12, 1992, chosen over Louisiana State University's Shaquille O'Neal. Most of the players on the team were at or near the peaks of their NBA careers. Bird had back trouble but was selected due to the team's historic nature. Robinson had played with the 1988 Olympic team and was eager to earn a gold medal at Barcelona. Johnson had retired from the Lakers in November 1991 after testing positive for HIV. His teammates expected Johnson to die from the disease, and he later described his selection for the Olympics as almost like a lifesaver, evidence that he could still overcome the illness and live a productive life. The Australian Olympic delegation prominently threatened to boycott the Games in protest of Johnson's presence, fearing that he might infect other athletes. Their threats backfired, however, as Johnson received even more public support. Ewing, Jordan, and Mullen had won gold at the 1984 Games. Malone had not made the team and saw his non-selection in 1984 as a challenge. 
Jordan declined head coach Chuck Daly's suggestion that Jordan serve as the public face of the team, and Bird and Johnson were selected as co-captains. Over the previous 13 NBA seasons leading up to the 1992 Olympics, these three superstars combined had 10 NBA championships and received seven NBA Finals MVP awards and nine regular season MVP awards. There was speculation that Isaiah Thomas was not part of the team because Jordan would participate only if Thomas was not on the roster. At the time, it was widely believed that Jordan did not like Thomas because he was seen as the ringleader of the Detroit Pistons of the late 1980s and early 1990s, nicknamed the Bad Boys. The team employed overtly physical tactics against Jordan in the NBA playoffs. In his 2012 book, Dream Team, author Jack McCollum quotes Jordan as saying to Team USA Selection Committee member Rod Thorne, Rod, I don't want to play if Isaiah Thomas is on the team. In 2020, Thorne and Jordan denied directly mentioning Thomas's name in discussions. According to Jordan in the documentary series The Last Dance, he asked Thorne, who's all playing? To which Thorne responded, the guy you're thinking about is not going to be playing. After the selection of the first 10 members of the team, Johnson released an official statement in support of Thomas, but years later it was discovered that his support was less than enthusiastic. In the book, When the Game Was Ours, Johnson said Isaiah killed his own chances when it came to the Olympics. Nobody on that team wanted to play with him. The selection committee considered several college players, including Harold Miner, Jimmy Jackson, and Alonzo Mourning, in addition to Shaquille O'Neal and Christian Leitner. O'Neal was the number one pick in the 1992 NBA draft, but Leitner's Duke Blue Devils teams won consecutive national championships in 1991 and 1992. Leitner was the Naismith College Player of the Year and scored the game-winning point in the 1992 NCAA Eastern Regional Final. Although O'Neill was a two-time consensus NCAA first-team All-American in 1991 and 1992, his team lost in the second round of the 1992 NCAA Men's Tournament. Leitner's college success ultimately secured his position on the team. To help the team prepare for the Olympics, a squad of the best NCAA college players was formed to scrimmage them. USA Basketball selected players whose style of play, it hoped, would resemble that of the Europeans the Dream Team would face. Members included the penetrating guard Bobby Hurley, all-around players Grant Hill and Penny Hardaway, outside shooter Allen Houston, and the tough Chris Webber and Eric Montross. Hill and Hardaway would play for the 1996 national team and Houston on the 2000 team. In late June, the Dream Team first met together in La Jolla, California, astounding and intimidating the collegians who watched them practice. However, on June 24th, the Dream Team lost to the NCAA team 62-54 after underestimating the opposition. Daly intentionally limited Jordan's playing time and made non-optimal substitutions. Assistant coach Mike Krzyzewski later said that the head coach threw the game to teach the NBA players that they could be beaten. The teams played again the following day, with the Olympians winning decisively in the rematch. Some of the college players visited Jordan's hotel room afterward and asked their hero for his personal items as souvenirs. The Dream Team made its international debut on June 28th at the Tournament of the Americas, an Olympic qualifying event in Portland, Oregon. The team defeated Cuba 136-57, prompting Cuban coach Miguel Calderon Gomez to say, you can't cover the sun with your finger. Marv Albert, who announced the game, recalled that it was as if the Americans were playing a high school team or grade school team. They were so overwhelming, a blowout after blowout. The Cubans were the first of many opponents who were more interested in taking photos with the Americans than playing them. 
The next five games were also easy victories for Team USA, which ended the tournament on July 5th with the 127-80 victory over Venezuela in the championship game to win the tournament and be one of four America squads to qualify for the Olympics. The team trained for the Olympics in Monaco for six days, practicing two hours a day and playing exhibition games against other national teams. During their time away from the court, the squad spent time enjoying nude beaches, Monte Carlo's casinos, and dining with royalty. There was no curfew, as Daly stated. I'm not putting in a curfew because I'd have to adhere to it, and the nightclubs don't even open until midnight. For one scrimmage, the group divided into two teams, the blue team led by Johnson, Barkley, Robinson, Mullen, and Leitner, and the white team led by Jordan, Malone, Ewing, Pippen, and Bird. Drexler and Stockton did not play because of injuries. Daly told the teams to play all you got now, all you got. The white team won 40 to 36 in what Jordan recalled as the best game I was ever in, and Sports Illustrated later called it the greatest game nobody ever saw. Because of the team's unique celebrity, the Dream Team did not stay in the Olympic Village due to security concerns. The Olympic Village had only four guards at the gate when the team arrived to pick up their credentials. One of the guards, upon seeing the Dream Team, grabbed his camera and his child while the team members were mobbed by other Olympic athletes. Daly also stated that the beds in the village were a problem, as two of his athletes were over seven feet tall, and he considered comfort a priority to keep the team rested. As a result, the team stayed at Barcelona's Hotel Ambassador, where USA Basketball occupied 80 of the hotel's 98 rooms. Fans were not allowed to enter the lobby, but did gather outside the hotel, hoping to see their favorite players. It was like Elvis and the Beatles put together, Daly said. Opposing basketball players and athletes from other sports often asked to have photographs taken with the players. In an interview years later, Charles Barkley recounted that we got death threats. Despite that assertion, Barkley walked around the city alone. When asked where his bodyguards were, he held up his fist and answered, this is my security. Jordan was the only player who studied the opposition carefully watching the game tapes. He and the other Americans enjoyed the opportunity to get to know each other in a casual setting, often playing cards all night, and for Jordan, playing several rounds of golf daily with little rest. Opposing teams were nonetheless overwhelmed by the talent of the American roster losing by an average of 43.8 points per game. This was the second largest Olympic Games point differential, surpassed only by the 53.5 point per game margin achieved by the 1956 U.S. men's basketball team. The Dream Team was the first to score more than 100 points in every game. Its 117.3 average was roughly 15 points more than the 1960 U.S. team. Johnson later recalled, I look to my right, there's Michael Jordan. I looked to my left, there's Charles Barkley or Larry Bird. I didn't know who to throw the ball to. In a press conference before the team's first Olympic game against Angola, Barkley famously quipped, I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. One of the Angolan players recalled that those guys were on another level, a galaxy far, far away. During the game, Barkley elbowed that very player in the chest and was unapologetic after the game, claiming he was hit first. Barkley was called for an intentional foul on the play. The Angolan player's resulting free throw was the only point scored by Angola during a 46-1 run by the U.S. Although this incident had no bearing on the final result, a 116-48 USA win, at the time there was a concern about the image of America to the rest of the world. After the game, Jordan said, 
there just wasn't any place for it. We were dominating the game. It created mixed feelings. It caused a mixed reaction about the US. There's already some negative feelings about us. Even though this was the only incident of the game, it changed the narrative. Instead of the Americans being viewed as a highly skilled team beating an underdog, some view them as bullies. Daly started Jordan in every game, and Johnson started in five of the six games he played, missing two games because of knee problems. Pippen, Bird, Mullen, Robinson, Ewing, Malone, and Barkley rotated in the other starting spots. Barkley was the Dream Team's leading scorer during the Olympics, averaging 18 points per game, although the Player Selection Committee had been unsure of his inclusion, worried that he would not represent the United States well. The closest of the eight games was Team USA's 117-85 victory over Croatia in the gold medal game. Croatia participating as an independent nation in the Olympics for the first time since its separation from the former Yugoslavia briefly led the Dream Team by a score of 25-23 in the first half. By the end of the game, Team USA had pulled away and Stockton agreed to a Croatian player's plea not to shoot. Pippen and Jordan aggressively sought the opportunity to guard Tony Kukoc of Croatia. He had just signed a contract with the Bulls for more money than Pippen, who believed that the team's negotiation with the Croatian had delayed his own contract. Tired of hearing about Kukoc's talent, Pippen and Jordan agreed to, as Jordan later said, not let this guy do anything against us. McCollum described the two Bulls as rabid dogs against Kukoc. Croatia had lost to the Dream Team 103-70 in their first game. The only team besides Croatia to hold the margin under 40 points was Puerto Rico, which lost 115-77 in the quarterfinals. Barkley later said, I don't think there's anything better than representing your country. I don't think anything in my life can come close to that. Bird called the medal ceremony and the playing of the Star Spangled Banner the ultimate experience. Johnson said the 92 Dream Team was the greatest moment of my life in terms of basketball, bar none. Jordan said that the biggest benefit for him from the Olympics was that he learned more about his teammates' weaknesses. He later defeated Barkley, Malone, and Stockton in three NBA Finals. As of 2014, 11 of the 12 players in the roster, all except Leitner, and three of the four coaches, all except Carlissimo, have been elected to the Hall of Fame as individuals. Global interest in basketball skyrocketed due to the Dream Team. In one game, an opposing player guarding Magic Johnson was seen frantically waving to a camera-wielding teammate on the bench, signaling to make sure he got a picture of them together. Daly said of the opposing teams, they'll go home and for the rest of their lives be able to tell their kids, I played against Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And the more they play against our best players, the more confident they're going to get. Subsequently, the number of international players in the NBA rose. On opening day of the 1991-92 season, NBA rosters included 23 international players from 18 countries. At the start of the 2011-2012 season, there were 74 players from 35 countries. Many international players credited the Dream Team as their inspiration to take up basketball. Happy 29th anniversary to the greatest team ever assembled, the Dream Team. Thank you. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please make sure to check out my other show, Happened in the 90s, every Thursday with my buddy Matt G, as well as our sister show, Crushgasm, with Kendra every Wednesday. 
And just like my big cousin Ebony, you guys are the real MVPs as well for even listening to this episode because I'm sure there's background noise throughout. If it's not a plane taking off or landing, there's trucks zooming by on the freeway, there's people walking in and out of their rooms, but look at where we are. We made it. Rest in paradise, Grandpa. Love you. Y'all be cool. Peace. Ohio.